we can turn in our Bibles once again to the book of First Peter. Our text this morning is First Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 19. Hear now the word of the Lord that is inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative. First Peter chapter 1, verse 17. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to better understand what you have done in our lives, how you have redeemed us. And Lord, we ask that you would bless us this morning by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. It is the start of a new school year, and one of the things that our family has been involved with doing, or at least that's come up in conversation, is we had a conversation about idioms. You ever had anybody ask you on the spot, what's an idiom? Define an idiom? It's difficult. You start trying to think through ways to describe them. And I've been thinking about that a bit, and I thought about it in the context of this passage this morning. There's an idiom that we use at times... It goes something like this. Don't put the cart before the horse. Right? Now, you know what that means, but you've already got a mental image in your mind of probably a cart, maybe with wooden beams in the back and some straw and a a horse, and it looks awfully silly when the cart's in front of the horse. Another way to think about this same sort of phenomenon is the fact that cars have changed over the past 20 or 30 years. Yes, I am going to actually talk a bit about something about cars that I know. It's that 20 or 30 years ago, many, if not most, cars were what we call rear-wheel drive. Right? It's the axle in the back turned, and the car was basically pushed down the road. Nowadays, most cars, if not all of them, are front-wheel drive unless they're all-wheel drive. Very few rear-wheel drive cars anymore. Cars are mostly pulled. And that's because in places like where I grew up, if you had a rear-wheel drive car and it was slippery, snowy, icy, or dangerous, you would wind up spinning in circles because you couldn't get traction. That same sort of difficulty of not being able to move the cart because the horse is behind it, or not being able to drive right because you're sliding around on the ice, can be found in our spiritual lives, can't it? We want to make progress, and we don't know why we can't. Lord, why aren't I a better prayer? Why am I not more consistent in reading my Bible? Why is my family like this and not like that? Why can't I act this way in my job environment? Why is it that I can't control my anger at times? You see, oftentimes, even as the redeemed children of God, we are tempted to put the cart before the horse. 
or to try and, in two-foot water, spin around with our rear wheels of our car. It's because we try and start with our actions. We try and start with what we want to see happen. And the Bible never begins that way. It always begins with what God has done and who we are in Jesus Christ. And then the result of that is our actions. As surely as night follows day. But that order is important. And so Peter's describing that order for us here this morning. I would like us to see three things together as we think about redemption and as we think about our actions. You recall last week we looked at holiness of life. This morning I'd like us to see that we are redeemed from a worthless way of life. That's the place where we begin. God reminds us that without him, our way of life is vain, empty, and worthless. And then as we move on, the Lord describes to us the price of that redemption, that we are redeemed by precious blood, the precious blood of Christ, Peter says. And then after reminding us what we have been redeemed from and what we have been redeemed by, Peter tells us what we are redeemed to. And that is a true way of life. Life as it is meant to be lived. And we have to go in that order. Now, Peter jumps around a little bit. So we're actually this morning going to look first at verse 18, then at verse 19, and then we're going to come back to verse 17 because of the way Peter has designed this rhetorically. But that order is important. What we're redeemed from, the price of our redemption, and then what we are redeemed to. Well, let's look then at verse 18. As Peter reminds us, he says this, "...knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold." Peter's reminding us in the context of our actions, verse 18 actually is the same sentence as verse 17. If you have a Bible that has a new sentence, you need to kind of think of this as a unit. What he's going to tell us how to act in verse 17 is dependent upon verse 18. He says, because you know, this is a continuation, because you know you have been redeemed. And what have we been redeemed from? What have we been ransomed from? Peter says, futile ways. Now, ordinarily, we might need to spend a lot of time thinking about futility and vanity and emptiness. But we did just spend the better part of three months going through the book of Ecclesiastes. So I think you have a good idea of what that means. But let me just describe it a bit for you. Feudal ways are ways that are aimless. They are without purpose. There is no aim. Now, when I think of aiming, I tend to think of a bow and an arrow with the big white target. Some of you, especially maybe in school, did archery. And you would take the bow and the arrow and you would point and aim. And you would aim very specifically, right? There are concentric circles. Maybe you didn't use a bow and arrow. Maybe for you it was a rifle or a pistol. But you aim specifically at a spot. And if you miss that spot, you try and correct your aim. You have a purpose in mind to be as close to the center as possible. But you see, Peter says, it's not just that previously you were redeemed from a way of life where you were trying to shoot on center, but you were just off about 45 degrees. No. You see, that's what oftentimes people who are not 
believers in the Lord Jesus Christ think. Well, my life's okay. I just need to be straightened out a little bit. I just need a little bit of advice. The Bible's much more radical than that. The Bible describes it this way. It's as if you're in one of these contests, an archery contest or a rifle contest, and you're doing like we often see on the news. Shooting a rifle up in the air. You're not even aiming at anything. That's what your life was like. There was no purpose. There was no aim. And because of that, this word also has the connotation of being worthless. It wasn't just aimless, it was worthless. It was worthless because there was no purpose. This reminds us of life in one of the great cultural, intellectual centers of the universe. Athens, circa 30 AD. Some of the most brilliant philosophers, some of the the greatest thinkers, a society that basically invented geometry, invented various forms of philosophy. Some of the brightest people who have ever lived, poets, authors, thinkers, and Paul describes them as a people whose lives are marked by this, emptiness, futility. They worship vain idols, same word. And we can apply that to our society as well. Our society is a society overrun by spirituality, isn't it? You hear that all the time. If you're like me and you see an interview with someone or, or you're watching something on the news, if ever anyone uses the words, Jesus Christ, your ears perk up. If they even use the words, the Lord, your ears perk up. But everyone and their brother uses words like, I'm a spiritual person. I like to encourage my spirituality. You see, Paul says that kind of thinking, or excuse me, Peter says that kind of thinking is vain. It's futile. Peter does here, Paul does in Acts. These are futile ways, and they are futile ways inherited from your forefathers. You might see in your translation perhaps the word traditions handed down is another way to translate this. Now, you see, we need to think about this for a minute. See, when we think of things inherited from our forefathers, or we hear about traditions oftentimes immediately a negativity comes up in our minds because we're Americans and we don't need to inherit anything. And we pull ourselves up from our bootstraps and we don't want to be bound to tradition. We want to be individualists. But you see, in Peter's day, this was a very positive term. It meant the good things that you inherited from your forefathers. We might think of it this way. From the feudal ways like morality inherited from your forefathers. A superficial kind of religion that relies on being moral. But you see, there needs to be more than simply having the right ideas and expressing the right thoughts. It's one thing to write an op-ed piece and say Congress should pass laws that do this or do that. It's another thing to not be vain like James says in James chapter 1. He says, if you think you're religious... But you don't keep your tongue in check. Your religion is vain. Same word. You see, it's not just enough to think moral thoughts and to set up structures for others to follow. You need to conduct yourself in a certain fashion. There's another way of life that's inherited. We might call it sophistication. We inherit 
a life of good manners, a life of good breeding, we might call it. We know the right things to say in the right places. We know which food goes with which drink. We know which shirt goes with which pants. We're, we're well-established and sophisticated. Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 3, using, again, the same word that Peter uses, vain. He says, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile, vain, empty. The final thing that we might think about is where Peter hits very close to home to us. We might say, you, you're preacher. We don't want to just be moral. We don't want to be sophisticated. We don't want to be spiritual in a general sense. But actually, what Peter's primarily aiming his targets here is at the positive stability of society. Those traditions that are passed down that keep society stable. Let me put it for you in a way in which will immediately evoke an image. What Peter's talking about here are family values. Peter's saying, you have been redeemed from the futile ways of family values inherited from your forefathers. Because you see, to simply have stability, family values, traditionalism, is not the gospel. We might think of, in recent debates about marriage and gay marriage, those who insist that we must stand by marriage because it is, quote, the bedrock of society or because it is an institution of several thousand years' duration, as opposed to saying it's a part of the command of God in the revealed word of God, and it is to be obeyed because God says. You see, we don't need family values in a vacuum. We need family values, but without the gospel, they are deadly because they insulate us from the gospel. And that was what was happening to the Jews of that time. Think of the Pharisees. They were trying very hard not to look at women who were scantily clad. They were tithing. They were praying. They were doing everything in a formal way. But they didn't have the gospel. And when they saw the gospel, they rejected it. And it was deadly. And we need to be careful about this. Because we can look at this and with Peter, cheer on and say, Go get them, Peter. Go get those Judaizers. Or bring it into our modern day and age and say, go get those Roman Catholics and their traditionalism. Go get them, Peter. But you see, that's true of us too, isn't it? We have our own traditions that sometimes we elevate above the word of God. You see, everything needs to be in its proper place. The gospel is what gives authority to traditions and family values. This is what we have been redeemed from. We've been redeemed from all these false ways of thinking. And Peter then goes on to tell us what we have been redeemed by. We are redeemed by precious blood, he says in verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or without spot. Now, Peter is setting up an intentional contrast that is set to jar us. It's meant to wake us up. You see... He says, you haven't been redeemed with perishable things like, oh, silver, gold. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of things that are perishable, things that are vain and worthless, silver and gold aren't the first things that come to my mind, right? Ladies, I'm guessing that 
those of you that own real silver silverware, which is a rarity today, but real silver silverware aren't going to go home and say, you know, taking up room in the drawer, don't really need this. Toss it out, right? Men, you're not going to go home and go through your wife's jewelry box and say, oh, all this gold chains, it's just tangling up. Let's throw it out, right? But you see, Peter does that intentionally to get a, a reaction out of us. Because it's not about, in a sense, that gold and silver are worthless. It's about the value of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we don't think of gold and silver as being perishable. We think of metal as things that last, right? When I think of things that are perishable, I think of things like milk that's left out. You ever had your kids leave the milk out for an hour or so? I think of things like bread. I think of things perhaps like wood that left out in the rain. But you see, if Peter were to say to us, you have not been redeemed with perishable things like day-old bread, then we would say to ourselves, you're right. I don't, I don't particularly like day-old bread. I'm not into day-old bread. But you see, what he wants us to do is to see everything that the world has to offer as worthless compared to Jesus Christ. He's lifting up the Lord Jesus Christ to us. He is saying what you value most in your life is of no value compared to Jesus Christ. It's because he is making a distinction between the eternal and the non-eternal. That non-eternal, futile, worthless way of life that you were marked by before you knew Christ has been replaced with an eternal, precious life. If you don't know this kind of life, then I encourage you to listen to Peter. I do more than encourage. I command you as a gospel preacher. Because you see, you won't find any value in anything other than Jesus. You may get a better car. You may get a bigger house. You may have a better job. You may have better jewelry. You may have better food. And your kids will go to the best colleges. But all of that is of one category. Perishable non-eternal, passing away. The only place that real, lasting meaning is found is in Jesus Christ. That's what Peter's saying here. And he says this is a precious sacrifice that we have. The Lord Jesus Christ shed his blood for his people. We have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Have you thought about that lately? That in order that you might inherit heaven, in order that you might have fellowship with each other, the Lord Jesus Christ poured out his life on the cross. It's a messy thing. You can't put this neatly in a box. This doesn't fit on a philosopher's tablet. There is a sacrifice involved, and it was a sacrifice of matchless worth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's matchless because Peter describes it by saying that it's the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, it's important to know that Jesus didn't just come and die. He came and lived a perfect life. Every time you were angry without cause, he was patient. Every time that you looked with an untoward glance at a man or a woman, he was chaste. 
Every time you skirted the truth in order to make yourself look better, he was honest and never lied. This is the one who poured out his life for us. The perfect one. The one who lived a life without sin in any fashion or way. And this is important to us. Why? It's because Peter's talking in this section, and last week we looked at holiness of life. And so it's an encouragement to us. Do you want to live a holy life? Do you want to show that you are redeemed? You have a forerunner. Jesus has gone before you. He is not only empowering you by his death, he has shown you the way. He is our pioneer. He is the one that we follow. We follow toward holiness of life. And Peter uses a vivid image here. Peter's a pastor, a bit of a preacher here, and he uses a good image. He talks of Jesus as the lamb without blemish or without spot. And the first thing that would come to the mind of anyone who knew their Old Testament would be the Passover, that lamb that had to be perfect. But the other thing that would come to mind about the Passover was not just the lamb itself, but the fact that that was the mighty act of God in redemption in the Old Testament. We've been reading about it in the mornings, haven't we? If we think about how that was brought about by the power of the ten plagues, Imagine that. Hail comes down, and it only hits those who are disobedient to the Word of God. Blackness. Blackness so black it can be felt. No lights. Not just an eclipse. Complete blackness. Candles don't work. Torches don't work. Complete blackness. The death of the firstborn of everyone in Egypt, not covered by the blood of the Lamb. You see, those are mighty redemptive acts. And what Peter says, in a sense, is that's nothing compared to Jesus. We are the recipients of the greatest and mightiest act of God. And we, too, have been delivered out of bondage and sin into freedom and service. Do you want to know that kind of freedom? Do you want to shake off the shackles of your bad behavior? or things that you ascribe to your upbringing or your nationality. The power is to be found in the mighty act of God. We are not just redeemed from a worthless life. We are redeemed by the most powerful act in the history of the universe, the death of God himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Peter describes this, but he's taking it to a point. He wants us to know where we've been and how we are getting to where we are, but he wants to remind us as well of where we ought to be going. He's a very practical minister. He says that not only have you been redeemed from a worthless life and you've been redeemed by that precious blood of Christ, but you have been redeemed to something, a true way of life. We pick that back up again. In verse 17, and we see that it's a current way of life. He says, and if you call on him, present tense, as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. You see, Peter is talking to pilgrims, people who are struggling right now, people like you and me. You see, Peter's not saying... 
that you should conduct yourselves in this way once you've arrived, once you have mastered reading through the Bible in a year three or four times, once you have kept your quiet time for 45 consecutive months. No. He says, right now, in the time of your exile, right now you are to conduct yourselves with fear. Why? Knowing this, that you have been redeemed. You see, we are right now to act in light of eternity. Peter says redemption is not just about eternity. Many people think that's what being saved is. It's fire insurance against hell. And I'll worry about it later. It's also not just about the kingdom in a big sense. Some people think of salvation in that sense. I need to change society. I need to see our country look a certain way. But you see, Peter says it starts with you and with me. Today, right now, we are to live in light of this. And he does this in an interesting way. He says, and if you call on him as father. This is a condition clause by the if. And if I wanted to cure some insomnia, I would go on for about 20 minutes about how various commentators have arguments about why it should be if, or various arguments about why it should be translated since. You know, you may have a different translation. Some say if, some say since. And you can dizzy yourself with commentators. But I think there's something simple going on here. See, Peter's a practical person. I think of Peter talking to them like I talk to my children. See, he's not doubting that they're Christians. He's called them elect. He said they're pilgrims. But he's speaking to them the way I do, for example, when my kids are getting out to go ride their bikes. You've done this, perhaps. Your children are out. They get on the bike. They're about to go out the garage. And you look out there and you say, if you are going to ride that bike, you had better put a helmet on, young man, young lady, right? Now, you know full well they're going to go out and ride the bike. They're probably already on the bike. They're on their way out. But you know just as much that they have to have that helmet on. See, you're saying to them, if you are going to do this, and I know you're going to, you must do that. That's what Peter's doing. He's saying, if you're going to call on him as father, and I know you do, therefore, you must know that he's one who judges impartially. What does that mean? If I'm going to call upon God as father... What does it mean to then think about him as judge? This seems to be kind of a contradiction here. If I think of God as my father, I want to think of him as the one who loves me and the one who takes care of me and the one who doesn't judge me but loves me unconditionally, right? Why is Peter bringing all this nasty judgment stuff in? There's a reason for that. You see, God is impartial. He is not to be fooled. God does not judge sin one way just because you think he should. You see, you can't say, God's my father, I believe in God, but you know what? I'm not going to believe anything in his word. And I'm going to live my life however I want to live. And I'm not going to do anything that he demands of me. What Peter's saying here is, don't think that God is going to deny his word wink at his truth, and change the way that the universe is arranged simply because you think he should. He's impartial. 
He judges sin severely, harshly, and deadly. We have proof of that in verses 18 and 19, don't we? Because if you are not going to be punished for your sin, if you are going to know forgiveness, it's only because that wrath was poured out on another who shed his precious blood. You see, God does not wink at sin. He judges impartially, and his judgment is true. He comes to the heart of the matter. You see, God doesn't watch a video and see how many times you're in church, or how many chapters of the Bible you have read, or how many minutes you have spent in prayer. Those things, if they're true, are only evidences of a changed heart. You see, as elders, we look at those things to see if your profession is credible. But God doesn't need to. He goes right to the heart and sees if your heart is knit with Jesus. That's where you need to begin. Don't begin on the periphery. Don't begin by cleaning up your life. Don't even begin, if you want your life to be cleaned up as a redeemed child of God there, begin with Jesus and move out from there. And this judgment is individual. We need to be reminded of this. You'll notice that Peter says that this judgment comes impartially according to each one's deeds. You see, you can't say to yourself, well, I'm in the church. And not only am I in the church, I'm in a PCA church. We believe the Bible. So therefore, I must be in good shape. No. Christian. Beloved. God judges you and me. I don't get a free pass because I'm a minister. Children, you don't get a free pass because of what your parents do. It doesn't happen. The judgment comes individually for either for each of us. You see, this privilege of calling on God as Father leads to a responsibility. We can't pretend that we have a relationship and think, well, God won't judge us. We'll just blend in into the mix and sneak through the pearly gates. No. You see, that kind of pretending will only get you so far. I could say to you, some of you have only known me a short while, perhaps a year, I could say to you, you know, it's interesting, Donald Trump is my uncle. And I'm in his will. And he's told me that he's going to leave me uh, half of everything he has. You didn't know Donald Trump was my uncle, but Donald's originally from New York, and I'm from New York, and he's my uncle. And I might even act that way. I might go out and buy a bigger house, wait on my inheritance, buy a bigger car, quit my job, give away my savings, saying Donald Trump is my uncle and he's going to take care of me. Except for there's only one problem. If in reality, he's not my uncle, and he hasn't promised me anything, That life of a lie, that pleasantness of play-acting is going to end. You see, that's what Peter's reminding the church here. Don't play-act. You're not doing anyone any good. You need to have substance. It doesn't help you to pretend that you call upon God as Father. He must really be your Father. And then finally, we see here that The way of life that we are redeemed to is a God-centered way of life. This shouldn't surprise us. For after all, Peter is directing us to God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why he says, you are to conduct yourselves 
with fear throughout the time of your exile. This, again, is something that jars on our modern ears. We think that Christians should never be afraid. That the life of the believer should always be marked by happiness and joy and carefree attitudes. But you see, Peter says that you need to conduct yourself with fear. Why? Well, Calvin's put it this way. He said, fear is the obverse of love. Obverse, kids, is a fancy word for saying the tail's side of a coin. So if love is heads, fear is tails. What What does that mean? It means something like this. That those who actually are mature, those who are confident, conduct themselves with healthy fear, both as believers and in life. For example... Who has a more healthy fear of the road? A veteran 30-year driver or a 16-year-old behind the wheel for the first time? Who's a more confident driver? Who's a better driver? You see, it's the one who knows what's out there that has a healthy fear of all the things that could go wrong and acts accordingly and is focused. You see, it's the experienced driver who has a healthy fear of people cutting out in front of them, of bad weather, of signs that aren't clear. That kind of a driver doesn't spend their whole time monkeying with the radio or checking their eyeliner in the mirror or looking back at the kids or reading a book. They have a healthy fear of the road. So this is true of the believer. You see, we know the temptations and pitfalls that Satan wants to put in front of us. And so we conduct ourselves with fear, with reverence, with awe for our Heavenly Father. Not a slavish fear, but a fear of reverence. This is the kind of life that we are redeemed to. It's a life, in conclusion that is marked by being like the Lord Jesus Christ. Living a life of holiness, a life without sin, a life of obedience to God's commands, with respect for God. Because you see, it's interesting here in this passage where it talks about Jesus being without spot and without blemish. Our first thought might be to the Passover because of the Lamb. But actually, if you look up this word, without blemish, in the Bible... It's used over and over and over and over and over again about the people of God. It describes us, the church. It's where we are going by the power of God. We are meant to be without blemish. We are meant to be without spot. And that shouldn't surprise us. Because we are meant to be like the one who is the lamb without blemish. And this is how we are to act, so that we show the family resemblance to be like Jesus, to be redeemed from a life that is vain and worthless, and to see the value of our redemption in the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and to act accordingly, to be redeemed to a true way of life that honors God and seeks to be, above all things, like Jesus. That's Peter's exhortation to you and to me today. May God give us grace 
to obey it throughout the week. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have so blessed us with this, your word. We pray, Lord, that you would show us the true manner of life that we are to be redeemed to, that we might conduct ourselves with fear during this time of our exile. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.